This is Chapter 60 of the WCBS Author Talks Podcast. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. We lace up our sneakers this week to find out why someone would want to run the entire Appalachian Trail in record time and what it took to do it. Then we talk to Ted Bell, who tells us his new book is his homage to the classic Bond film, Goldfinger. The Appalachian Trail runs nearly 2,200 miles and winds through 14 states, all the way from Maine to Georgia. Now, imagine running it in 46 days. For those of you who can't do the math in your head, that's about 48 miles per day. My feet hurt just thinking about it. Well, that's just what Scott Jurek did with the help of his wife, Jenny. The entire ordeal is retold in the book North. They joined our Peter Haskell to talk about it. This was not a leisurely hike. Scott ran the length of the trail, nearly 2,200 miles. Scott, in your book, you write, that's like running 84 marathons consecutively. What was this all about? Well, I was at the point in my career where I was really trying to figure out, you know, should I retire for good or, you know, is there something that could get that passion and fire back? And as much as I had accomplished and as much as I had, you know, really, I guess, I guess probably got every ounce of my potential out of in my career, I felt like there still was something I wanted to do. And I'd always had um, in the back of my mind, I wanted to do some of the national long trails uh, like the Appalachian Trail. And Jenny and I were also going through a time where we were sorting out. We had um, several miscarriages, had difficulties having a family. And Jenny um, you know, literally had a miscarriage where she almost died on our kitchen floor. And it was one of those situations, too, where we thought, you know, this is a time for us. We need to unplug for a bit, recalibrate, and taking to the mountains and trying to go after this speed record uh, was what we thought would be a, a good way to do that. We'll get to some of what you've just described in a little bit, but uh, we should say that you are an experienced and champion ultramarathoner. That means uh, races of 100 miles or longer. What is it about those kinds of races that that's so appealing to you? For me, it's a number of things that uh, I think it's the sheer challenge and magnitude of that challenge. When I first got into ultras at the age of 20, I thought, you know, this would be a cool thing to do. <laughs> Most 20 year olds though, I don't think about running 50 miles in the, in the woods of Minnesota, but I think it, it because it was just so enormous because the goal was so lofty that the, there was something appealing, like, you know, could I really do this? And and once I completed it, like a lot of people do after even their first, you know, 10 K or half marathon or marathon or like never again, I told myself that was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. <laughs> I'm not doing it again. So I think, you know, there's that allure of doing something really big. And now over the years, after doing so many of these races, I think the, a big part of it is when I really challenge myself on that level it gives me a different perspective and it's very transformative too. I, I find things out about myself and come out the other end, a, a different person. And I think that's, that's why I keep going back because when you look on paper, I'm in the discomfort and the sheer distance, it sounds like, you know, there, there are better ways to maybe do that. But for me, and I love spending time in the mountains. I love, you know, being just that small Back in a large landscape and being connected with the outside world and uh, just having to tap into those primal instincts of being adaptable and, and being like a lot of humans used to be. So I think it's a, definitely a, a number of different reasons. 
So how is ultramarathonic different than what you did? I mean, obviously, this was 46 days, 2,189 miles, and the terrain was not uh, not very favorable or easy to deal with. How was this different than the other things you've done? Well, it was completely foreign and new to us. Uh, Jenny had been on three miles of the trail. I had been on 20 miles of the trail. The Appalachian Trail climbs over half a million feet. Um, that's essentially six times the height at which most uh, commercial airliners fly at to give people an idea. Um, and then it also descends a half a million feet. So, and it's rocky, rooty. It's unlike a lot of other footpaths that were designed for horse stock or bicycles. So the terrain lends itself to this. Um, and for Jenny and I, it was completely new. We hadn't been to even some of the states that the Appalachian Trail crosses through. And this whole idea of seeing a part of our country that we hadn't seen before was very appealing. And I think that's what we, we really set off to do, something different, something that was going to be extremely challenging, and we could do it together um, and, and work as a team. And I think as a couple, we were, we were also looking to do that. And Jenny was uh, definitely game. She actually had the harder job finding me out there on the trail and in the road crossings. So a question for both of you, and Scott, I'll ask you first. This, you know, seems like it's a solitary pursuit, but it was anything but. Describe the teamwork involved, and then Jenny, when he finishes, if you can talk about what you dealt with. The team aspect is really key because Jenny had to be in sync with, you know, my, I guess, physical and, and mental needs. She had to I guess, put a lot of different hats on and she had to organize logistics between, you know, getting from one place to the other. And a lot of times her driving was three times as long as I was hiking because she had to, you know, up, get out of the, the trail, drive her way around it and then up, meet me at a different point, sometimes 10, 15 miles down the trail. She had to coordinate logistics of, you know, finding a laundromat in these remote little villages and towns, uh, you know, finding food and preparing food for me and, and just really taking care of all those basic needs. But then on the, the emotional and psychological level, she she also had to, you know, push me to to get me a little bit further and sometimes to kind of, you know, prime me when I, I didn't think I could go on. She was the one who was like, hey, we've, we've got to do this. You can do it. So, she, she played a, a number of different roles, and that, that team aspect really came true. And then we also had friends that joined us at different points in the trail, and we write about this in North. Um, I've have, had a lot of great friendships over the years and have these eclectic friends that really know the trail. So um, guys like Speedgoat and Horty, they were a big part of this journey as well. And then the individuals who came out towards the end that really helped us. So it was definitely a team atmosphere. And then there were all the people that you know, wanted to join in on the energy of the, the effort who followed online and who came out on the trail and, and hiked and ran and, you know, were out at trailheads. It, it was the outpouring of support was amazing and brought us food and, and all sorts of things. It was really, really quite neat. Jenny, what was this like trying to coordinate this uh, traveling band of uh, ragtags over this kind of terrain? <laughs> um, I mean, for me, it was difficult, and there was a lot about trust because Scott and I didn't have a way to communicate to each other while we were doing this. Well, people can follow his tracker online. I rarely ever had 
service or the ability to look and see where he was. So it was mostly just going back to, you know, making a plan and sticking to it. And so if he said, I'm going to be at this point, um, you know, at the end of the day, I would have to navigate these back dirt roads at night and, and just hope that I'm in the right spot and hope that he makes it. And he'd be always late, you know, an hour to four hours late. And I would just have to trust that he was going to make it here and that I shouldn't leave. And, you know, I'd always start to worry, like, what if he injured himself? What if he, what if he like got a ride somewhere else and he's trying to track me down? And I just always had to trust that he would make it to the, the meeting spot. And, um, and he always did, which was great. Um, and then once other people started joining us and that was a little bit more challenging just because everybody wanted to help and help is a complicated word. You know, I say that in the book, like everybody means well and I love it, but sometimes it was just a little bit too much and everybody had their own um, ideas and agendas and um, it was a little bit hard to just kind of work together, but in the end it all worked out and it was great. You know, Scott, you touched upon it a moment ago, some of your friends who joined you on the trail. And it, that was one of the things that I thought was moving, is these people, just the selflessness that they exhibited, mm-hmm. uh, going, f- there was really nothing in it for them. But again, this is not easy stuff. What was the significance of that for you, the fact that your friends were out there with you? Oh, it was it was huge. And you know, we didn't really plan on a lot of them being able to come out. Uh, Jenny and I, again, had thought, you know, this is our time. We're going to get away. We want to be by ourselves. Um, and then after a while, we started realizing, like, boy, we really need some help. And having somebody with the experience and wisdom like old Horty, he had you know, several uh, experiences with setting national trail speed speed record. So he held the Appalachian trail speed record. He held the Pacific crest trail speed record and I'd helped him on his Pacific crest trail um, record. And so I, I think with friends, we, we have this mutual respect. Like we want, we want to, we want each other to succeed. We want each other as much as we're competitors and we love our records to, to last forever. We also have this bond that, you know, is a selflessness, but we also get a lot. And I think you, you have to give to receive. And I think there's this, there's this, um, this symbiotic relationship between all of us. And um, at times it was a little crazy for Jenny because she's like, Oh, I got to spend all this time uh, with these friends that I don't normally hang out with 24 seven. But um, in the end, I think she had a blast and, and somebody like Speedgoat, he came out for two weeks and helped. And we hadn't planned at all on him coming out. I, I really wanted to respect uh, his efforts because he had put so much energy and effort. He had tried twice to break the speed record, and here he is out helping me do what he had always wanted to do. And he was definitely out to do some uh, recon for his next year's mission uh, to break the re- break my record. Um, so there was a little bit in, in it for him, but it was just, like you said, it was a really selflessness. And I think what's cool, too, is, or what a lot of times it's nice to be together with people who understand what you've been through and by speed goat and hoardy and some of these people, they could, they could see like, Hey, I've been there before. And I think 
they didn't necessarily just want to want to watch me suffer, but they're like, oh yeah, now he knows what it's like. And I think I think they, they right. had, especially Horty. I know he wanted to to make sure he's like, oh yeah, now you know what it's like to, to be out here day after day doing this. And um, they, I think they wanted to relive it too. It, it's really cathartic to be able to experience it on the other side um, and crewing for somebody versus you being the the individual who's doing the 50 mile days. I want to read a quote from the book and I have you talk about it a little bit. This is a quote, we often think we can't go any farther and feel like we have nothing left to give, yet there is a hidden potential and strength in all of us begging us to find out. What does that mean for the rest of us? I think it means, and that's what North is about, as much as you know, it's about this speed record on the Appalachian Trail and you know, doing 50-mile days, I think everybody can find that hidden potential in their own passion, in their own way, um, their own hobby. It doesn't have to be sport. You, you just have to put yourself in the situation, in the environment to, to taste it a little bit and to, to squeeze out. And I think having, having, you know, friends, having a partner, having other people that are around you, you know, push you a little bit extra further and, you know, I guess you have to find out what that is, but don't be afraid of stepping out there beyond the edge and, and trying it. And I think that that's what the lesson is. Um, you, you really have to, you, you can't find out what it is without um, experiencing it. And I think get out there and do it and, and find that thing. And, and it could be what, whatever level for some people it's, you know, getting up off the, the couch and, and doing something they didn't think they could do. And I want to just get one more quote and get you to, uh, to explain your thoughts on it. The quote is, hike your own hike, I'll blaze my own trail. What do you mean? Well, there is, there's a saying on the Appalachian Trail. Um, I, you know, some people didn't quite understand, uh, you know, a very small population, you know, of really diehard Appalachian Trail hikers didn't quite understand, you know, why would you want to set a speed record? Why, why, you know, try to you know, absorb it at a faster speed. And the reality is I wasn't really moving that much faster than most hikers. I just was out there a lot longer um, in terms of the hours of days that I, I would put in and, and just the mileage. But, and I think, you know, everybody has their own rhythm, their own speed. Um, you hike your own hike, you do it in your own fashion. And, you know, if you want to go super lightweight and, and not carry a whole lot, great. Or if you're somebody who loves the comforts and wants to, you know, watch uh netflix at night i watched uh saw several uh through hikers you know in their tents you know i would hear this you know sound of like somebody watching tv and a lot of the through hikers would tell me like yeah scott we're out here for six months um you know once in a while we need a good um, good movie to to kind of pass the time and so i think you know to each their own some people never want to touch technology and, and just totally disconnect um and i think the idea is you know find your own style. And that's really what the Appalachian Trail was for Jenny and I. We did things sometimes which maybe weren't the best from a strategy standpoint, maybe a little bit different than the traditional hiker might do. Um, but we also love to go slow and, and hike with a pack on our back. And we don't always go out and set speed records. We we enjoy the, the nice, slow, easy pace. So I think it's it's really about, you know, what is that hike or that journey for you and, you know, find find your own style, find your own rhythm, and, and make sure you're getting what you want out of it. Jenny, hike your own hike. I'll blaze my own trail. What does that mean for you? Um, I think it's just everybody 
goes to the mountains for their own reasons. And so it's not to judge each other and it's not to um, assume that somebody's out there with the same intentions as you, but just um, everybody's doing their own thing and to respect that is what it means to me. Scott, in the book, you describe really psychological despair at some point and physical exhaustion. If you can describe what you were going through and how you overcame that. Yeah, it's, it's uh, and that's what was the difficult thing in this book. Often I would struggle with, you know, how did I describe what it's like to, you know, finish a 53, 54 mile day, you know, be on this total high of like, yeah, you know, got through it today, all the trials and tribulations. And then, you know, realize, you know, minutes later, as I'm, you know, taking off my shoes, tomorrow, I'm going to do the same dang thing. And, um, you know, knowing what it's going to take in that effort level, um, it was a constant battle of these highs and lows. And I think it's a lot like life. Um, you know, it, this journey, I compressed a lot of those emotions and, you know, psychological battles and, and discovery all into a 46 day window. So I like to say it's almost like living a bunch of lifetimes um, in a very short period of time. But in reality, life is a lot like that. You know, we, we go through these ups and downs. We, we go through these low points where we don't think we can go on. We don't know how we're going to get through it. And somehow we, we have to keep putting one foot in front of the other. And that's what this journey, I constantly was reminded that, you know, I'm, I'm stronger than I think I am. I can, I can get through this, but it was hard to believe in myself at times. And I think anybody can relate to that because, you know, we just, there, there's so many situations in life and life has prepared me for the things I love to do in the mountains and the woods and ultra marathons. And conversely, ultra run outing and, and being out on the trails has prepared me for life and, and the situations I've had to deal with. So I think it's really a, it goes hand in hand. And I think a lot of people can relate. Endurance uh, is something we have to practice in daily life. Um, enduring is really, I think, one of the ultimate goals of, of getting through life. And we don't have, we have a lot of comforts these days. So I think almost the psychological piece is, is the hardest thing in life. Um, we, we can get from place to place in cars and airplanes. We have temperature controlled uh, living quarters and there's a lot of comforts nowadays, but the psychological component is something I think we, we deal with so much on a modern level. We should stress again that you were trying to set a record 2,189 miles in 46 days. So a couple of things, when you finally made it and you did it, what was that feeling like? And the second thing is when you look back on this accomplishment now, what sticks with you? I would say the thing that sticks with me the most is that, you know, when I think I can't go any further or dig a little deeper, um, there's always something left in me. And I, I've just, even after all these years of, of doing this sport that I love, the Appalachian Trail, you know, cemented that and secured, like, you know, maybe there's something bigger out there. Like, you know, life is about continuing to explore and, and find that potential in, in all of us. And we just have to, we have to use utilize something. And the record was the tool or the apparatus that I used to, to squeeze that extra bit of potential out of myself. 
Um, it, it's not something I, I do all the time. And I think, you know, for me, it was, it was just one more method that I could do that. And I think it's, it's finding the tools and, and finding that next tool will be the, <laughs> the challenge of, you know, where do I go from here and, and what do I do next? Scott, it was a, a fascinating book, a, a, a fun read. I appreciate your time. Our guest has been Scott Jurek and Jenny Jurek. They together have written North, Finding My Way While Running the Appalachian Trail. Scott, thanks so much. You're welcome. It's been a pleasure. Thanks Jenny, for having us. Jenny, thank you. Real-life Russian President Vladimir Putin is just too good, meaning bad, to pass up as a villain in a spy series. In fact, Putin returns as the enemy in Overkill, the 10th installment in the Alex Hawk thriller series. A slightly under-the-weather Ted Bell filled us in on what we can expect this time around. Putin has been deposed by the oligarchs, uh, and he's on the run, Um, and he's desperate for gold and cash, which has been looted from his Swiss accounts. So he has the brilliant idea to to form a secret army and tank division and invade Switzerland <laughs> so and steal the gold back. So um, it's an interesting premise. It's like uh, Goldfinger. And why real-life Vladimir Putin and not some made-up Russian villain? I just have always been fascinated by him. And I introduced him in Tsar, which I think was number five, T-S-A-R. And I spent a lot of time in Russia researching and and meeting KGB guys and, and read all the biographies and books by Putin. And I just thought he was fascinating. So rather than just some fake guy, I said, why not? Why not have the real thing? And you mentioned you've spent a lot of time in Russia researching your novels. Is that even safe yeah. for you to do anymore? No, I don't think so. I mean, I didn't feel safe then. Um, I had some bad some bad experiences. But um, just just the idea that you're in a police state where you're totally at their mercy is, is every day it's anxiety. So, and I know one of your stories involves almost disappearing while waiting for your flight out of Moscow. Absolutely, yeah. I was, I was, I was just getting ready to board, and they took me, took me out of the line and put me in some little office and said I couldn't leave. <laughs> I was thinking that as long as they didn't pull my fingernails out, it might be really good PR for the book <laughs> if they held me for a couple of days. You know. Does ever what you've experienced during your research make its way into your books? Um, well, that story didn't, but um, most of what I, I, I learn and hear researching makes its way. Um, that's, you know, that's, I mean, I knew I had to, to, to go to Russia and St. Petersburg and all over and feel it, just the life on the street, you know, to be able to write um, convincingly about it. And you didn't start out writing espionage thrillers. Tell us how you got to this point. Well, the first book I wrote is called Nick of Time, published by St. Martin's, and it's a, a historical novel for young adults. Um, and I actually wrote it because I, somehow I, I was a little intimidated by the idea of writing an adult novel. But I figured if I'm writing for an eight-year-old, how bad can it be? So, <laughs> so I wrote this um, novel set in um, the pre-invasion of the Channel Islands by the Nazis, 1940-something. And... Um, it was published by St. Martin's and it made it on the Times list. So that was my first novel. And then I wrote the sequel to it called uh, The Time Pirate, which the Nazis have invaded. And uh, the hero is the 11-year-old boy um, who um, fights against the Nazis. So, yeah, those were the first two. And then I wrote Hawk. 
And in your Hawk books, he he himself is is quite an outsized character, and he's also surrounded by a lot of larger than life allies and friends. Right. They come they come out of left field in some in some cases. Right, right. I had to build a cast, you know, for the play. Um, so I just chose you know characters that I thought would endure. And I have Ambrose Congreve, who's um, former chief inspector of Scotland Yard and um, considered like the brainiest detective in England. Um, and then I have Stokely Jones, who's a um, uh, of the Joneses of West 188th Street, former um, Navy SEAL and New York Jet, who's now a, uh, a Hawk sidekick and uh, and people like that. And they're all... Um, they all come back, you know, every book, and it's just like old friends are gathering. You know, it's just so I love it. Um, I figured out a long time ago that the secret to this um, way of writing a spy thriller is that every book you just have to come up with a new villain and a new girlfriend. That's the Ian Fleming model. Um, so, which is harder than it sounds because you you can you can figure out ways to get rid of the the, the villain, but you also have to figure out ways to get rid of the old girlfriend from the previous book, <laughs> which is a little tricky. So what's next? I, I, I hear we'll soon get to see Hawk and all his friends up on the big screen, right? That's correct. Uh, Paramount Pictures uh, is in production with uh, the first movie. They've bought the rights to all the books, um, and it's going to be called Hawk, uh, even though it's based on, on the last novel, Patriot. Uh, and the producer is amazing, Lorenzo Di Bonaventura, uh, who's, who did Matrix and Harry Potter and Perfect Storm and Transformers. The guy is phenomenal. And um, his, his belief in this franchise is so powerful. <clears throat> and he says that um, Alex Hawk is going to be his James Bond. So I'm happy to go along with that idea. And you probably can't say too much, but who do you envision playing Hawk? Well, I was interviewed earlier this morning, and I, I said, I, I'll tell you what I said. I said, in the early days, um, I saw him, uh, I was all about Chris Hemsworth. I saw him in uh, Rush, uh, which is the Formula One racing movie, and he was a British um, sort of playboy race driver, and he was perfect for an upper class, you know, British aristocrat, which Hawk is. Um, he's Lord Alexander Hawk. Um, and, and I still think Chris would be great. But then I saw Tom Hardy. Um, I saw Tom in a movie called Legends, which he played the two Cray brothers, twin brothers. And there's something about him, and I kept trying to figure out why I liked him so much. And I think he's the first actor that I've seen that captures the sort of animal magnetism, uh, the strength of that that Sean Connery had, which I think is what propelled um, his, his rendition of, of James Bond. Because Sean just had it. And I think Hardy's got it, too. So, I mean, I'd be happy with either of those two guys. But, you know, there are different people who have different ideas about, you know, who it should be. And will you get uh, a lot of input into that, or you're just happy to, uh, to sit back writers, and see what happens? Let me explain. Like the writers on a movie production are one step below the caterer. So, you know, we're, <laughs> we're, we're, we're above the drivers, but we're below the caterers. We don't have any. I mean, we have input, but we have no power. You know what I mean? Yeah, I do know what you mean. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> um, but I mean, I, I have I have a great working relationship with Lorenzo, and uh, and we've spent a lot of time talking about scenes and talking through the beginning and end and everything. Um, and he's very receptive to me. So I mean, I, the fact that we get along means he'd like he wouldn't mind having me on the set, you know. 
And do you have a, a release date yet, or is that still something? Well, sometime, the air? sometime next year. I mean, we've got the script. Uh, I'm going out there next week for a meeting with Lorenzo, um, and um, you know, it's just it, you know, it's Hollywood. I mean, it's we got a lot of pieces have to come together. Sure. Well, we all look forward to that. It should be. It, it'll definitely be play great on the big screen. There's a lot I of action. There's a lot of great characters. Yeah. Well, Overkill um, is 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 coming out on Tuesday, and um, I'm excited about it because I've been obsessed with the movie Goldfinger since I was 12 years old, and um, this is sort of my Goldfinger. <laughs> um, but instead of Fort Knox, it's Sweden, it's Switzerland, which is a little bit more formidable than Fort Knox, um, and and the, and the thief is uh, Vladimir Putin. So it's not a boring premise. No, it's not. I, I, I've read it. It's not a boring premise. Oh, you've read it? Oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. It definitely, so. it's definitely entertaining. <laughs> well, it's like, you know, I, I, I think these books are kind of like amusement parks. I mean, I'm just trying to have escapism, but also grounded in, in real world politics and, and sociology and society. So, um, you know, they're, they're not entirely frivolous. I mean, you can learn a lot. Absolutely. Well, Ted Bell, the new book is Overkill. It was a pleasure talking to you today. Well, thank you so much, Lisa. And thanks for putting up with my horrible uh, flu voice. Well, we hope you'll feel better soon. That's this week's podcast. On tap for next week, we talk to the first Westerner to escape a Syrian terrorist prison after seven months of captivity. It's quite the story. If you aren't already, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS880Books. And feel free to reach out to me at LisaT at WCBS880.com. That's L-I-S-A-T at WCBS880.com.